You're listening to 3CR Radio. face on 3CR with James. On today's show, we feature a special episode about Victoria's new conversion practices legislation with Nathan, Nicole and Patrick from the Brave Network, a survivors' peer support and advocacy organisation that played a major role in the legislation's design and passage. You know, the advocacy in the last few months relating to legislation is not the end of the journey. It's really, hopefully, I mean, it's a mountain we've had to climb, but, you know, uh, it you know, most of what Brave has done has been enabling people to, as we say, deconstruct some of the messaging and the ideology that they've been exposed to, to build a sense of community and solidarity, um, and also to build the capacity of survivors to be there for other survivors as well, you know. Uh, and so the last few months has really been the, com- the culmination of that. It's been um, seeing uh, people who even just a few years ago were really struggling and the, their journey as survivors sort of weighed heavily on them. Um, and to, you know, in the last few months to have been able to meet with government so regularly, provide so much detailed content, including content that has appeared in some cases word for word in the legislation that was passed here, um, has been truly amazing. And I guess I feel really, um, yeah, I feel honoured to have been able, well, to have been trusted by so many survivors to be able to be this like mad director of the craziest orchestra you've ever seen <laughs> um, to some extent. Um, and also it's been a relief in, as well over the last few months to not also feel like that director, but to actually feel really, you know, one amongst uh, equals people that I'm just so proud of who have been able to, um, I guess, move past or at least put aside some of the intense trauma they still feel and to have used their skills, professional skills, personal skills, what have you, um, to engage with politicians and public servants and bill writers and media, and in some cases to have been the main voice standing up to the conservative right, where perhaps politicians and queer other queer advocates probably weren't able to do that. Um, and so, yeah, it's been, it's been amazing, but the last few months, I guess, has really been the culmination of so many years of, of work. I was probably one of those people that two kind of maybe two years ago I I didn't really know where I fit um or my own story in that um and so I was very much coming from a place when I first connected with Brave um of just kind of deconstructing my faith and theology and who I was and trying to work out who I was um and through that process I kind of realized that I actually had somewhat of a shared ex- experience in the story um of some of this stuff myself and so um yeah it was kind of been one of those journeys and so through that I've um yeah had to kind of learn what my story is and that actually some of the stuff that I just thought was bad theology was actually damaging and had actually hurt me um and yeah and so I guess the last couple of months particularly as we've worked through this Victorian legislation 
um, I've been a part of that conversation, being able to share my own story and experience and uh, learn from others and hear hear what's going on in that process um, and being able to network with people um, as we've done that, I guess. Um, yeah. So I, I only met uh, Nathan and the other people from Brave, I think in around about 2018, when I started writing about and talking about my own experiences with conversion practices. Um, at the time, still being a married man who was sort of, uh, I guess, still trying on different labels for what worked for me in terms of sexuality and unpacking my own kind of experience. Um, so I, I had started writing things and I think just through Google, I think I found the Brave Network and started kind of associating with them and they were just such an amazing support to me. Uh, Nathan was a good kind of sounding board and it was good to just sort of see the stories of other people going through a similar thing. Um, and so it just kind of flowed naturally that um, as this intensified more and more towards, you know, through its different processes where we we were writing submissions to the government together, uh, we were, um, you know, I, I was getting support from Brave if I was talking to a journalist about, you know, the the bill or about my own experiences um, or, you know, doing, I think um, I remember uh, giving some information to the Health Complaints Commissioner when they did their inquiry. So there's been an, a number of different stages. I, I came a little bit late to the party though, because there's a lot of history that predates myself. So um, but, but yeah, I guess in the last kind of year or so, it's been quite intense, um, going through my own kind of, um, experience with this whilst, um, sharing a lot of that information very publicly. It's not been my preference to do that, but it's felt like something that's very important. Uh, it's, it's felt very important for me to do it so that, um, so that my own story can affect that kind of change with the legislation, if that makes sense, even though it's been quite uncomfortable at times. But that's been my involvement with Brave, and it's something that um, I'm just immensely proud of. 3CR. I mean, the biggest change that we've experienced is not this legislation, it's actually COVID, and the fact that we went from meeting once a month in a pub in inner Melbourne um, with regular speakers and a pub meal beforehand um, to now going on to Zoom and then having people from all around the country get connected and join up and become part of Brave through the online Zoom meetings uh, and now being at the point where it's kind of probably not appropriate to go back to meeting in person because then we'd be excluding all these people in other parts of the country and then people in other parts of the country saying, hey, can we start something similar where we are? So we've been uh, we're not wanting to, you know, start chapters of Brave or anything. We're not really about that. But we've been sort of meeting with other advocates and or self-advocates, as we call them, and um, survivors and people who are allies who are wanting to be part of that um, recovery and support journey, not necessarily uh, full-on activism journey just yet, but that sort of survivor peer support um, environment. And so we've been having little group gatherings with folks in uh, – 
let's say most other states and territories and also um, across the ditch. Um, and we've also been involved in a range of research projects as well. So that's sort of, um, I guess, in terms of the targeted sort of strategic work in some way. But at the end of the day, I guess Brave's priority is about um, enabling that sense of community of people who still want to have a faith or maybe they don't want to keep a faith but they've been through a really intense faith journey, particularly a fundamentalist faith journey, and want to be able to talk about the ideas they absorbed and come up with some of their own ideas that are true to who they are about faith and about spirituality. And so we're just going to keep doing that as we have been doing and um, are looking at some more creative ways of finding that balance between meeting in person and meeting online. Um, I think as well as the Victorian legislation is uh, um, enacted um, and as the Victorian Equal Opportunity and Human Rights Commission um, sets up the scheme that they're now tasked with uh, setting up through the legislation, um, we'll obviously be involved there too. Um, we're also um, finding that in the last couple of years, we're slowly, finally beginning to connect more with people who come from non-Christian backgrounds um, or maybe Christian backgrounds that are not from, you know, your typical Anglo-Australian background. And it's been really lovely to have that connection, um, those connections being made and also to become a more diverse group. Um, yeah, so that's, uh, I think that's where Brave's at, at for now. Um, in many ways, this legislation is not a change for how we operate. It's really a massive encouragement. That's probably the main thing that it is for us. So, yeah, I I moved to Victoria um, two, two and a bit years ago um, and I connected with uh, the Brave, Connect, uh, Brave Network. I kind of met some of the crew at a conference um, and from there I connected in and I, it was at a place in my uh, life where I was still kind of questioning my identity and um, I'd been deconstructing some theology and just trying to work out where I fit in the church and where I fit in the world and um, all of that. And so uh, Brave Network for me was a really safe space to be able to question those things. Um, and through that process, um, I I began to realise that the stories that I had were stories of um, of a lot of informal conversion practices and um, had been moments where, like, it wasn't just bad theology or the way things were, but actually it was really harmful to myself. Um, and so for me, through that, therefore, um, I got kind of got involved as I began to unpack and process that a lot more um, in... Uh, within the community and so um, from there I was able to kind of network with some people and um, find spaces um, so I've really appreciated that and um, having moved from interstate um, it's been really nice particularly as we've gone online with Brave to be able to connect um, friends from back home and um, my community um, with with the Brave Network as we consider what that legislation means in various places. It's outstanding that we've managed to pass this legislation in Victoria. It really is world leading, but it's not over yet. It hasn't been implemented. It hasn't come into effect yet. And 
there's been great promises made by the government that it's going to be survivor-led. So I want to make sure that those promises materialise. Um, I want to make sure that um, those implementing it don't take it upon themselves to suddenly regard themselves in, as experts in this area because they're not. It's it's an incredibly complex and nuanced um, space and it needs to have survivors at the centre of its implementation. So I think Brave and others um, who have direct experience need to be directly involved. Um, so I think, you know, no, I don't have concerns. I think so far they've been really, they've been quite... Um, They've been quite wonderful and impressive to deal with. They've really listened and I just want to make sure that continues and there's not, you know, too much of a kind of victory lap and forgetting about the importance of actually implementing it properly. I think each of the key milestones need to have survivors informed, uh, informing them. I, I know that there's one kind of proposal around having, I think like a, a panel of people with lived experience that are, you know, able to inform cases and things like that. I think that's one area. But uh, I don't know, Nathan might be able to uh, sort of answer in a bit more detail than myself. Yeah, okay. So some of the like really, if you like some examples of really specific areas where <clears throat> I, I just don't see any government body or anyone else for that matter being able to, uh, you know, contribute without survivor support um, to the setting up of that scheme at, at VORC um, would be, for example, coming up with the indicators that investigators would use to be able to assess whether a conversion practice has taken place and whether someone they're investigating is, has, is perhaps hiding something. Um, it's so nuanced. I mean, even survivors have spent years, <laughs> years um, coming up with those sort of what we think are gold standard questions that you would use if you were doing an investigation. So, um, and I think one of the things I've noticed with Brave compared to other survivor advocacy around the world is that, um, you know, most of us have got professional skills. Like I've worked in policy communications and research. Patrick is is an incredible policy brain um, and has worked in a range of other types of investigation in the past. You know, Nicole is a minister. We have other members of Brave who are theologically trained, who work in, you know, have amazing professional careers. Um, and so we've brought all those skills to the table um, and have really, but, you know, we have had to push. We've had to push every step of the way to have our voices heard. Once our voices have been initially heard, usually people in government have sort of said, wow, okay, you guys know what you're talking about. Um so, uh, you know, then, then we've been invited to the table quite closely, actually. Um, so I think, yeah, that, that would be my hope is that as VORC sets up the scheme that they would sort of um, have a more participatory approach to this, a more equal approach. So instead of us just sort of being brought as consultants at an arm's length, but actually being right at the table. Um, and we have seen globally in terms of the conversations uh, in global conversion advocacy, that legislation and implementation that centres survivors is far superior to legislation that's not developed with close survivor um, support and advice. Um, and I would even say that legislation that has not been informed by survivors properly 
in some parts of the world, particularly in the United States and also in Queensland, those processes have led to legislation that may actually cause conversion practices to now flourish afresh in places that aren't touched by the legislation. Um, for example, the vast majority of conversion practices we know happen in an unpaid context, in religious in religious contexts such as pastoral care, and they happen focused on adults, not children. Whereas a lot of the legislation passed in the United States and also in Queensland focuses primarily on children in paid professional contexts. So basically that legislation now gives a green light to um, conversion practitioners in religious spaces focused on adults to now continue what they're doing with impunity um, with the confidence that they won't be touched by legislation. Um, so uh, the, the, the need to have survivors central to government processes relating to conversion practices and investigating conversion practices is not just about making it better, it's actually about preventing um, unforeseen consequences that may actually make things worse. So it's, uh, it's a lot more than just survivors saying, let us in, let us in. It's actually let us in because we're really concerned that if you don't do it properly, it could make things worse. Absolutely. 3CR. Nicole, what are your thoughts on some of those unforeseen consequences, particularly as a, as a person with a theology background? Um, I think um, following the, well, throughout the kind of the heated last couple of months of the Victorian legislation, there was a lot of fear, particularly in religious communities, um, people that may be uh, caught on to messaging that wasn't right or they just, the unknown for them was was really stressful. And so um I was engaged in many conversations with people going, oh, but it doesn't happen in our contexts, in our denomination or in our churches and um, or um, or people that were like, oh, of course we don't want the bad stuff to happen. Like we wouldn't want that. But they're also kind of blinded by the informal stuff that we that's so prevalent. And I think um, I think I would really like to see in this next phase some education around that fear that's really come out um, within religious settings, um, just the education within churches. Many churches are open to that, but they just they're just unaware. Um, of those faith communities are they they're just not sure where that fits in to, in regards to where they are. And so um, I think uh, the conversation with with many survivors or that are engaged in faith communities or theologians or um, that we have on hand is really important in for the next couple of steps just to to really help educate um, those church settings um, in collaboration with the government I think um, to yeah just to be able to to help those churches as as this gets implemented can you give us some examples of some of those informal kinds of unit you know, issues around conversion practices that you alluded to before uh, so there's there's many. Um, uh, for, so my in my experience, my personal experience, um, when I was in youth group, I my youth lead, I had questions around uh, sexuality and faith, and my youth group leader would take me out and talk to me around around that. You know, we'd have coffee and we'd chat about it. Um, and so it was kind of it was very much a pastoral care setting, um, privately accountability one-on-one um, -on -one prayer situations. That's sort of some of the informal ways 
in which this um, manifests. And I think, um, yeah, there's, I mean, there's lots of stories all over the place. It, it might not be an ex-gay program, but it happens um, through conversations um, targeted at an individual um, directly, kind of telling them that they can only belong in the, so like I was told, you can only participate in this, you know, you can choose to be a Christian or you can choose to be gay. You can't be both. So what is your choice? And, you know, as a 16-year-old, I deeply loved my church community. And so the choice was, well, I will suppress who I am or who I think I might be in order to fit into this church community. Um, And so, yeah, others can probably say more about that, though. Uh, I guess some of the other practices that um, I experienced were around being prescribed like manhood books to read so that, you know, a lot of my um, sort of informal counselling was kind of, it was like uh, through a Trojan horse of like manhood, um, but it was clear why we were talking about manhood for me and it was because I needed to you know, uh, apparently become a more manly man that other young men would want to be like because that was the root of my kind of same-sex attraction. And we talked a lot about um, – so I would meet for these kind of informal pastoral care chats over coffee or in my pastor's house, and it would be about, um, you know, the ways in which I was underfathered or, um, you know, the mistakes my parents made or how – overly creative I was so it was I mean it was just kind of um it was something that bled into like many conversations in and out of them or you know or that I would receive prayer for um and yeah like I said I'd be given books about how to be more manly and uh you know, told to stop hanging around with certain friends and to start hanging around with other people. Don't choose to study that because there's too many, you know, I don't think I can say the F word on this station, but (laughs) too many F uh, AGs in that profession. So don't, you know, don't go do that for work. Or It just kind of bled into everything where um, every choice had to be submitted to this person and then filtered through a lens of whether it would make me more gay or less gay, um, more manly or less manly. And, you know, there was really not much room for um, whether or not that advice was authentically for me or whether it was just kind of a trope being trotted out based on really ill-advised kind of logic. Um, I don't know if that makes too much sense but yeah that was kind of what it was for me it also included referrals to a more formal structured program um and you know other things but that's kind of that's some of the stuff that's top of mind as we talk about it today i just think that um that uh senior leaders can be prone to a little bit of, you know, blind spots when it comes to areas that are as niche as this. And, you know, I've sat around board tables myself and I've seen a lot of assumptions get made at the start of a project that don't pan out to be accurate. So that was, you know, why I made those comments before about survivors leading the process, which is what was promised, you know, that it would be survivor-led, not just informed, but 
that survivors would actually be in, involved in leading it because it's important to not make wrong assumptions at the start about things. We we sat and watched the the parliament speeches and I heard some of the most hilarious comments made by MPs that should have known better. Um, you know, people, there were MPs sort of turning on tears and crying about ice baths and, you know, and all kinds of practices that just don't occur because they watched a movie about conversion therapy or something and then thought that they understood it. So I think that could be a fatal kind of risk here is that people think they understand it, but they're not putting in the work to actually hear survivors on what's actually happening right now and how how to, you know, take action against it. So one of the things about the legislation is that it really demonstrates that pretty much every single step of the way in understanding conversion practices supporting survivors, doing research, consulting with community, putting together a policy position, writing the legislation, refining the legislation or the bill, um, running a, a, a campaign, having it pass and then celebrating it every single step of the way, there's always been a message that is wrong but sounds good to the community and the message that is right that is really difficult to explain. <laughs> so, um, for example, it was uh, looking at the objections from the Australian Christian Lobby and even the Australian Medical Association, which we were very disappointed, by the way, like the AMA's response was atrocious and unacceptable, very misinformed and clearly some sort of agenda there behind some members of the AMA. And that's something we need to follow up and we'll be following up strongly. But, you know, some of the objections were that this bill will put people in jail for praying with queer people. The bill is amazing because the bill basically basically targets that it needs to be focused on an individual um, and it needs to be – a practice needs to be focused on an individual and grounded in the intent to change or suppress. So automatically that's different to, for example, if I was giving you advice about my theological beliefs in a one-on-one -on -one setting, um, it could be a bit distressing if I'm sharing with you and you're a young queer person, actually, or an adult. Um, but the fact is I'm not coming with the intent to change or suppress. I'm sharing a view that is unsavory, um, but it's not. I'm not coming with this intent to enter into some kind of relationship that's going to lead to me constantly picking apart your childhood to work out why you're queer and then help you deal with that. Um, so there's actually a lot of tolerance in this legislation for still some fairly unsavory conservative messages to be sort of ricocheting around the place. Um, if if I if I were to be affected or under the scope of the criminal sort of offences, I would need to be not only focusing on you as an individual and with the intention of change or suppression of your orientation or gender identity, but I would also need to have caused injury or serious injury beyond reasonable doubt in a court. Um, which can include psychological injury. And I do believe a lot of the members of BRAVE would be able to prove that, by the way. But it sort of sets a high bar, but it also doesn't, because if you've been through conversion practices, you will be able to prove injury or serious injury beyond reasonable doubt. Um, if, if you really haven't, and if a religious leader has not shown that intent, it's kind of, it would be kind of hard to fall into that, that scope of that offence. Um, if injury has or serious injury has not been caused... And, where, and there's a bit of an uncertainty about whether that intention was present on behalf, on, on the part of the practitioner or the religious leader or what have you, then it goes into the civil scheme, which Bjork is setting up, which allows for investigation, which is brilliant because I think as, you know, you will have been hearing, um, there is so much nuance and this really takes a deep dive into every context and it requires gathering evidence and gathering information. And for example, 
checking emails and text messages to see what kind of communications are happening. That's where you can really see if that intention is there. Um, so again, that's another reason why survivors need to be involved in developing the indicators. But it really actually gives a lot of scope and a lot of space to that religious freedom argument. Um, it's both a really powerful, forceful law that really gets down into the nooks and crannies and allows for investigation, and no other legislation around the world does that. But it also sort of makes sure that it doesn't inadvertently capture people that are still assholes, but are not necessarily practicing conversion practices, right? Um, on top of that, the legislation covers advertising of both paid and unpaid services, and it also covers inducements or referrals. So um, I might be a benign pastoral care worker who is just working with someone who is queer and not really demonstrating that intent to change or suppress. But then if I refer you to someone else who is really going to go hardcore on you with the conversion practices, well, then I may have felt fallen foul of the legislation by referring you. Um, which, which, And we know referrals are a huge driver of harm. They lead to a lot of the harm. So the legislation is fabulous there as well. Um, and then on top of that, you have the, the exemptions for health practitioners. So there are a lot of concerns um, or crocodile tears, as I like to call them, um, from health practitioners saying that they would not be able to treat and work with young trans people. But the legislation gives a massive exemption to all health practitioners to be able to use their reasoned professional judgment to comply with their regulatory or legal requirements. And the main one there, of course, is the code of ethics that psychologists have to follow which says that you need to treat some, be able to treat someone competently, confidently and affirmatively with providing enough information to provide informed consent. And if you can't do that, you need to refer them onwards. So basically what it says is that if you're following your code of ethics and you're a health practitioner, nothing changes for you. If, however, you are treating a young trans person or an adult trans person for that matter, and you take them round and round in circles through unnecessary assessments, and you don't tell them that down the road there's the GP who could actually really, you know, prescribe HRT really quickly, <laughs> much quicker, then you're falling foul of the code of ethics, in which case you're not under the exemption in this legislation and you are in scope of this legislation. So it navigates so many of the professional concerns um, and so many of the crocodile tears from the religious right and even the medical right, incredibly. Like we have spoken to advocates and human rights lawyers around the world who have looked at this legislation and said, how the heck did you come up with this? This is incredible. And it's like, well, we did a lot of the background work, but I must say the people in the Department of Justice who were involved in writing the bill are truly magicians. We're so impressed by their by what they've done. And so for us, the celebration, back to your original question, the celebration and the joy we feel is not about the fact that a ban has been passed. It's that legislation has been passed that has got x-ray vision and goes right to the core of the issue that provides power for research and investigation and um, education um, and gives that power to our Human Rights Commission. It's unprecedented. And it also sends that clear message to all people involved in conversion practices and all people broadcasting and transmitting conversion ideology in Victoria that they are their their time is is now their time is up um, and that's what we're proud about not not it's not just the ban it's the way this what this legislation does what it covers and how it centered survivors so if a bill was passed that didn't do those things then we'd probably be the opposite we'd probably be really distressed 
Pat, what would you like to add to that, especially around the investigative powers? I find them fascinating. Um, can I give you an example that a friend gave me the other day? So uh, a friend reached out to me. They watched all of this transpire, and through it, they sort of they contacted me the other day and said, Pat, do you think I have been through conversion practices and it was the first time they'd really considered it even though it was a long time ago and they described to me that you know when they were at church a friend of theirs used to pray with them um, to you know remove their same-sex attraction and then they started meeting regularly with their pastor who did a more intensive kind of um, practice and then they heard on Christian radio a testimonial of someone who was ex-gay and then through that um, because the Christian radio was advertising Exodus Ministries they then contacted a formal ex-gay program so there's four different interactions they'd had with the the kind of uh, you know, conversion practices ecosystem. And I said, okay, this new legislation categorizes those four quite differently. So your friend doesn't meet the threshold for civil or criminal because they're just a friend with no duty of care over you. But if you felt damaged by that, you could contact the commission and they might facilitate some sort of um, outcome between you where, you know, your friend understands how it hurt you and they agree to, to stop it. Um, the pastor, however, and the radio station might fall afoul of the criminal sections because the pastor has done this kind of serious and persistent kind of practice and it may have caused injury. And they had a duty of care over that person as the pastor of the church. The radio station may fall afoul of the advertising sanctions because they've advertised um, conversion practices. So, you know, and then the fourth one, which thank God didn't pan out because that organization's kind of now defunct in Australia. But you've got different kind of interactions happening that have space, like Nathan was saying, there's different spaces for those to be dealt with at a reasonable, proportionate level within the legislation. There's a civil scheme that allows people at a less serious end to understand the harms of what they're doing and to to actually make positive changes. And then when a leader of an organisation has a duty of care, then that's taken much more seriously by the commission. So, you know, uh, like I think that's a good example that kind of illuminates some of the options in the legislation that the commission has to deal with this and, and not to overreact and, you know, it really doesn't sit um, in with that narrative of fear that was being pushed out about everyone being, going to jail and being rounded up and, you know, all these kind of things. There's actually a lot of really great lower-level interventions that can happen to really change behaviour. Um, the, the duty of care thing is powerful. It's going to operate just like the child safe laws where church boards and boards of any organisations interacting with people in the, you know, that where this might happen, they have a proactive kind of duty now to actually plan for this and go, right, like if this kind of stuff were to start happening in our organisation, how can we prevent it? And I think that's incredibly powerful. And the education function that the Commission has in supporting and advising companies and you know churches in how they can prevent it is going to be incredibly powerful um i think one of the things that um i'm really appreciative of is um the brave network and so dry statement um and all of that were very um intentional in ensuring the mental health and safety of everybody 
that engaged in the process. Um, and so um, at every step of, you know, talking to media or sharing a story or working with the government on legislation, um, there's been some very direct, you know, this is mental health support available for you should you need it, um, you know, please do do this. And, and also an awareness of... Um, you know, if you're not up to talking about your story that day, there's no pressure. You're not pressured to to do that or to um, share your image or share whatever, wherever. And so I think um, it's been really good to see that that culture and that value of of respect of someone's story and mental health and well-being um, being articulated and so well put out across. Um, and I, so I think for me that's been really helpful um as I've come through this process to be able to access and know that I've got the mental health support and that I can just say hey I'm, I'm switching off this channel this conversation channel for a week I need to I just need to not go um and to know that you've got the support of um a whole family of people behind you I guess um in that regards and so I think for me that that's been really helpful in this process so I guess not a direct result it's a direct result of the legislation, but also just throughout the whole process, it's been really good um, to be able to do that. So, um, coming out of the after, the, yeah, coming from the legislation, I think um, in some ways I feel a more confident person. Um, I, I've certainly learned a lot through this process. Um, I, yeah, like I've only been out for a couple of years and so it's kind of one of the first I guess fights that I've kind of had to face um in my adult life and um yeah I just feel really supported and uh encouraged and I've learned a lot about um yeah being a leader and articulating things and growing and confidence and so I'm, I'm really thankful for the process it's been hard at times but it's been really really good Three uh, <laughs> um, I think a lot of us are <laughs> feel a little bit exhausted and a bit wrecked by this process. We, there's a real strong sense of accomplishment, but you know, as we say, the reason there's a there's a P in PTSD for a reason is that these things come and bite you afterwards. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I think. You know, we, we're a bit wobbly, as one of my friends says. We're feeling a bit wobbly and, you know, just uh, we're just sort of getting our, our heads recentered and our hearts recentered after all of this. Um, but obviously there's a lot of interest from other places around the country and around the world. Um, and so many of us are just finding ways to be able to share that information appropriately. And, um, yeah, I think a lot of that social connection that we have between you know amongst ourselves and with allies has been really helpful so um yeah I mean I feel I feel good I feel okay but also um I think we're all very mindful that we've just been through something really massive um and in many ways this is about so much more than conversion practices this has actually been about confronting um funda a fundamentalist religious ideology that has been allowed to just spread un without really without enough resistance really um, in our in our state for far too long and this has really had it come to the surface and 
An example would be that the strategy of the religious right for so long was conversion practices are, thing of the, are a thing of the past. They don't happen anymore in Victoria. Or they'd say things like, um, you know, we're totally against coercive practices like electroshock therapy, but these other things that you're talking about, religious practices, well, you're just wanting to clamp down on religious freedom. And so there was that rhetoric, and even members of the Liberal Party shared that rhetoric. But at the end, in Parliament, in the vote in the Upper House, seven out of nine Liberal Party members voted for the legislation, even when all of their amendments had been rejected. And I think that really demonstrates that there's a real sense that the culture is really shifting in our state around this um, and that there's some change happening. And I think that's what gives me a real sense of joy. It's it's seeing that deep change happening because um, I know that it'll actually really save lives and more than just save lives, it'll also prevent a whole generation of people living kind of crap lives because of the pain and the aftermath of going through conversion practices and being exposed to conversion ideology. Um, it'll raise the quality of life of so many queer people of faith in particular. And, yeah, that's, um, I think, something we feel really proud about. Nathan, Nicole and Patrick from the Brave Network for sharing their insights and experiences. For more information about the Brave Network, go to thebravenetwork.org. If this content has caused you distress, you may wish to contact QLife on 1800 184 527 or qlife.org.au or Lifeline on 13 11 14.
In Your Face would like to thank Thorn Harbour Health for their sponsorship of this program. Thorn Harbour Health envisions a healthy future for our gender, sex and sexuality diverse communities, a future without HIV, and a future where all people live with dignity and respect. To find out more, search Thorn Harbour Health on your search engine or Facebook.